Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Uh, it is March the 4th, 2023. Uh, I'm in a very cold and rainy, very chilly San Francisco. And in early March, as many Americans uh, are living in chilly, cold, wet places, their minds wander to baseball. Um, and we're going to have a kind of baseball conversation today, although a baseball conversation with a twist. Next month in April, on April 15th, uh, Major League Baseball will celebrate its annual Jackie Robinson Day uh, in honor of one of the greatest figures, not just in the sport, but perhaps in American history. Um, and we're talking today about a new book. Uh, it's actually came out last year. It's just come out in paperback. Uh, 42 Today, Jackie Robinson and His Legacy. It's edited by uh, Michael G. Long, uh, forward with, by, by Ken Burns, and uh, lots of interesting contributors. Um, Mike is joining us from Hershey in Pennsylvania. Mike, welcome. Is it cold there? It is cold. And we had a nice warm spell, but uh, it's almost brutally cold again, unfortunately. Has your mind wandered to baseball? Are you ready for the new season? I'm almost ready for the new season. I'm coming out of COVID, so I'm not that ready. But it's been nice to see some of the spring training games on uh, on the television. It's it's like a revitalization period for all of us who like baseball. You're not just a, another baseball fan, just another fan of, of Jackie Robinson. And not you're, you're not only the author of uh, this new book, uh, 42 Today, but also another wonderful book, Jackie Robinson, A, a Spiritual Biography, uh, The Faith of a Boundary-Breaking Hero. What is it about Robinson that you've spent so much of your time as a writer and thinker covering, Mike? Robinson I grew up with was the Jackie Robinson of childhood books. And these books inevitably focused on April 15th, 1947. That was the date that he cracked the color barrier in Major League Baseball. Uh, I grew up with a Jackie Robinson who was peaceful and nonviolent and non-threatening. Uh, I grew up in rural white America. And I think that was probably the Jackie Robinson that most of us in that area loved. Anyway, that was the Jackie Robinson I grew up with. And about maybe 15 years ago, I was researching a book on Richard Nixon and Billy Graham. And I was of at all the people, Nixon. Right? Yeah, of all people, right? And I was at the Nixon archives in California. And an archivist came out and he said, Have you seen the Jackie Robinson file? And I said, No, I'd love to see the file. So he brought up this thick file of letters. Andrew, between Robinson and Richard Nixon that spanned from 1952 to 1972. And these were letters that addressed civil rights and politics primarily. And that really piqued my interest because, wow, I didn't know Robinson was interested in civil rights and politics. And those were the fields that I was interested in more than much more than baseball. So I really got interested in Robinson through the side door, even through the back door, so to speak, uh, not so much because of his baseball prowess or even because of his role in shattering the color barrier, but because of his relationship with Richard Nixon. <laughs> 
that's, a, that's an odd story, but there you go. Yeah, it's a it's a it's it's a wonderful anecdote, uh, Mike. What, I, I'm curious. Obviously, we, we, we want to spend most of today talking about Jackie Robinson, but it's surprising uh, that he was involved in a correspondence with with Richard Nixon. Was there a degree of cordiality, of respect, even affection on the part of Nixon towards Jackie Robinson? A deep affection. They met at the Republican National Convention. <clears throat> excuse me, in 1952. They were introduced by a Republican operative. And during this initial meeting, Nixon recounted a football play that Robinson was involved in when he played for the UCLA Bruins. And Robinson was playing halfback at the time. It was a complicated play. It was against the Oregon Ducks. And Nixon recounted this play in detail and asked Robinson about it. And that really set the tone for their friendship, at least initially. Uh, Nixon also later roped Robinson into campaign for him. In 1960, Robinson left his job as vice president of personnel at Chuck Full of Nuts in New York and took a sabbatical there, I should say, and campaigned full time for Richard Nixon in 1960. Nixon was running against John F. Kennedy and Rachel Robinson. Uh, Robinson's spouse was a big fan of John F. Kennedy, but Robinson himself favored Nixon over Kennedy. Nixon was a Republican candidate, Kennedy the Democratic candidate. We have to remember that the Democratic Party at that point was really full of Dixiecrats, Southern Dixiecrats who obstructed civil rights legislation. And for Robinson, the Republican Party was still the party of Abraham Lincoln. And he also saw Nixon as somebody who was better on civil rights than Kennedy was. Nixon had steered passage of the 1957 Civil Rights Act through Congress. He had visited Africa and talked about the problems of discrimination back home in the United States. He promised Robinson that he would be faster, quicker, and less moderate on civil rights than President Eisenhower, his boss, was. So Robinson really hopped on the bandwagon at that point and campaigned full-time for Nixon. And it, Nixon lost, of course, and it was in that election when the black vote started really swinging in the Democratic uh, way. But uh, Robinson was not harbinger of black politics to come. It's, it's, it's a fascinating subject and story, uh, Mike, because back in 1960, of course, Robinson's support for Nixon, especially from the point of view of an African-American man, was, uh, was, was quite credible. I mean, JFK's record on race was checkered at best. And yet Nixon changed, of course, in the 1960s. How deeply disappointed was Robinson? And did he, did he try to address Nixon's uh, discovery, shall we say, of, uh, of, of the dog whistle? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, near the end of that 1960 campaign, Martin Luther King Jr. ends up in jail in Reedsville State Prison. And Robinson asks Nixon in a private meeting to make contact with King family and express his regards and his concern for Dr. King. And Nixon refuses to do so, saying it would be, quote, grandstanding. That's the word that he used, according to Robinson. And Robinson came out of that meeting with tears welling in his eyes, according to William Sapphire, uh, a future New York Times colonist at that point. And Robinson almost soured on Nixon right there and then at the end of the campaign. 
he was talked down by Branch Rickey, actually the man who brought him into Major League Baseball in 1946, 1945, 1946. But he does, he, Robinson, does sour on Nixon even more later. In 1961, uh, Republican candidate Barry Goldwater talks about the need for the Republican Party to go hunting where the ducks are. And by that, he means the Republican Party shouldn't waste its energy on searching for black voters. They should focus on 60, white conservatives. 60, 60, uh, 60, what, for the 62 election? Right. Or the 64 yes. election. And then, and then Goldwater runs in 64, right? Right. Yes. And, yeah, so and it, the Goldwater says this in 61, and Nixon backs the him. And Nixon eventually says that civil rights shouldn't play a, the prominent role in the presidential campaign. And Nixon and Robinson really turns against Nixon at that point. So, of course, uh, most people, when you when you look up Jackie Robinson online, especially for his images, you just see images of a wonderful baseball player. But your book, uh, the edited book, uh, Mike, gets beyond that baseball legacy. Um Tell me a little bit about his, his, his politics and his experience of uh, discrimination and perhaps even segregation when he was growing up. Yeah, I'll start with his politics and then go back to the years when he was growing up, if I may. So Robinson had a big political dream. You know about Dr. King's dream of the beloved community. Robinson had this dream, a political dream of a two-state, of a two-party system. This is where the Democrats and the Republicans are in control of the two parties. But black voters would not put themselves in the back pocket of either party. Ideally, in Robinson's dream, black voters would suspend their vote and then choose whichever party or whichever candidate best serves black interests. And Robinson did this, and in many ways, he was considered a political maverick for doing this. And so in some years, Andrew, it's really interesting, he sided with the super liberal, well, I shouldn't say super liberal, but the liberal Hubert Humphrey of the Democratic Party. And then in other years, he sided with Richard Nixon in 68, 72. He's still backing Nixon, believe it or not, uh, as, the, as the races move on. So he was a political maverick. I think that's probably the best way to describe his politics. Although his favorite politician was Nelson Rockefeller of New York, the governor of New York, uh, the wealthy patrician of New York, right? He liked Rockefeller's uh, fiscally conservative policies. He liked his social conservatism, but he also really liked Rockefeller for being progressive on civil rights. And so Robinson liked those types of Republicans who were socially conservative, but really progressive on civil rights. And so he favored Nelson Rockefeller. He favored Mitt Romney's dad, Governor George Romney of Michigan. And in the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, where I lived, he favored Governor William Scranton. So that gives you some insight into his politics. But if we can go back to his childhood, it's really formative uh, for his entire life. Pasadena, was where the Robinson family eventually settled. He was born, Robinson, in Cairo, Georgia in 1919. And his father leaves his mother, Mally, six months after Robinson was born. And she takes the five kids on what she calls the freedom train 
from Cairo, Georgia to Pasadena, California. You know, they're heading to the promised land. And as you know, as California residents, California is always a promised land. <laughs> so they end up in California and Pasadena, California. And it doesn't turn out to be the promised land at all. It's a land of segregation as well. So in Pasadena, the theaters are segregated, restaurants are segregated, downtown stores are segregated. Uh, the police department has members in it who are members of the Ku Klux Klan as well. So this gives you some indication of the type of environment that Robinson grew up in. The local pool in Pasadena, the Brookside Plunge, has International Day. It's the day where kids of color, one day a week, can go and swim in the public pool. International day, right? They named it as if the kids were part of the local fabric of the community. And then after the kids of color were done swimming in that public pool, the authorities drained it and scrubbed it for the next six days so white kids could swim in it without catching the diseases from the kids of color. That gives you some indication of the type and of... What, uh, what was Robinson's reading of this? Was it that there was something rotten with America itself, with California, or, or did it reflect um, the hypocrisy of the Constitution and laws? Well, early on, Robinson's read of it was primarily religious, and he saw it as an affront on his God-given uh, skin color. His mother taught him early on that the skin color, his skin color, was a mark of racial dignity. It was a mark of dignity. It was a mark of pride. She taught him the Adam and Eve story. And in her telling, Adam and Eve were originally black. They turned white after God caught them eating the apple. They were so scared, so frightened that they turned pale. That's a great, that's <laughs> a great story. We did a, yeah, we did a show, Mike, uh, a few months ago with a, um, uh, a young woman who's written, a, who, who's written a very successful book on the mothers of MLK, Malcolm X, uh, and James Baldwin, I think. Um, that generation of African-American women was was obviously remarkable, but not all of them were remarkable. What was his mother like? Was she one of those remarkable women who brought up brilliant, talented sons? She was. In fact, Robinson often wondered aloud where he would be uh, if not for his mother. She was the one who really took those kids by the hands and led them across the country. You know, that's a rare thing. It was part of the Great Migration, but many families did all this together. Mally um, did it without her husband. In Pasadena, she found a way. She was a domestic help, but she saved enough money to buy a house, believe it or not. And it was a decent house, which was big enough for her family. And she taught her kids uh, the principles of dignity and freedom. And she, one of the important things she taught uh, Robinson Andrew is that freedom is not a pie in the sky. It's not something out there that you eventually wait for. It's something that you fight hard for right now. So in Robinson, she instilled these important spiritual lessons that really fueled him as he fought against racism in Pasadena and then throughout the rest of his life. The new book, uh, Mike, 42 Today, Jackie Robinson and His Legacy, comes with a, a, a foreword from, from Ken Burns. And Ken Burns doesn't need any introduction. Mm, one of America's, probably America's leading documentary filmmaker. Of course, one of his most successful and famous films is Baseball. Um, I'm actually watching uh, his, uh, his jazz. I've watched it before. It's a fabulous series, too. Mm -hmm. um, how much did 
Robinson, when he was growing up, in terms of the history of, of baseball and jazz and this segregation, how much did he see his talent as a sportsman or African-American contribution to music or culture as intrinsically American? Oh, wow. That's a good question that I don't think I've ever considered before. But while we're on Ken Burns, let me mention that he has a great documentary called Jackie Robinson. <laughs> so make sure you watch right, Jackie yeah. Robinson as well. I missed that it's one, of course. Yeah, It's a terrific film. Uh, Robinson, uh, which you movie. and not uh, and you and and you were what the, uh, the 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 editor of that, or certainly you worked with Burns on that. No, I, I provided commentary for the documentary, right? Yeah. And contributors to Forty Two Today did as well. Uh, but I can tell you that Robinson was a blue blooded patriot. He loved uh, the United States. Now he obviously he saw that it had major problems with racism and discrimination and bigotry. But, and this gets to the difference between Robinson and Malcolm X. But Robinson yeah. saw America as a place where he and his people had invested their entire lives and that they had a right to make good on that investment. And while Malcolm X favored Black people, at least early on, withdrawing from the United States and forming their own national community, their own political community, Robinson balked at that. And he balked at that a lot, exactly because he believed that he and his people had so much invested in the United States. So Robinson was a third going integrationist. He wasn't about to knock down the institutions of the United States. He wanted to get in them and to get his fair shake. The movie uh, 42, of course, uh, is also a, a, a memorable re representation of, of Robinson's life. But from what I can remember, there wasn't a lot of politics in it. Do you think that we've misrepresented Jackie Robinson as too much of a baseball player and too much involved in the desegregation of the sport? Have we forgotten the real Jackie and Robinson? Oh, absolutely. I think we love our heroes in the United States to be rather one-dimensional and shallow at that. Uh, so, for example, we freeze Dr. King in 1963 at the March on Washington. We freeze Rosa Parks in 1954, at the end of 1954, on the bus in Montgomery. This is what we do with our heroes. We've done the same thing with Jack Robinson. We've frozen him on April 15th, 1947. And why have we done that? It gets to what I said earlier. He's safe. He was non-threatening. He's not fighting back. He's turning the other cheek. He's non-threatening to white America. We like him there. Now, when Jack Robinson starts to stand up and fight back and fight back with some ferocity, when he starts to stand up and speak out for, demo for democracy against racial injustice, then... We don't like him as much. So I think that's what we've done with Robson. We've frozen April 1947. That's very unfortunate to me. In fact, Robinson said that all of his exploits on the baseball diamond don't compare to what he did off the diamond. He also said that he became much more aggressive after baseball, which shocks me because he's still not home plate 19 times. But he became really assertive in fighting for civil rights after baseball. I love that part of Robinson, and I wish more people knew about that. 
you brought up Malcolm X and you contrasted uh, Malcolm X with, with MLK. I mean, obviously, Jackie Robinson politically, culturally is much closer to MLK. But the way you just presented him, um, I don't think Malcolm X would have a problem with. Did he have any formal engagement with Malcolm X and that radical uh, uh, wing of the, uh, the community or of, 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 of the political community, the African-American political community in the 1960s. Was he ambivalent about Malcolm X or, or, or did he understand where at least where he was coming from? Oh, he understood where he was coming from. That's a great way to put it. Uh, the two exchanged fiery letters in 1963. And these letters, uh, which you can find in a book I edited called First Class Citizenship, The Civil Rights Letters of Jackie Robinson, in these letters, the two really stake out their position. And this is where Robinson defines himself as a thoroughgoing integrationist. He also takes issue with Malcolm X's embrace of any means necessary uh, to defend lives. And so they battle over these two points. And Robinson also criticizes Malcolm X for not getting involved in civil rights and politics. He says that Malcolm X basically keeps his hand clean. He's popular in Harlem, but just about only in Harlem. While everybody else doing the hard work in the South, Malcolm X is staying far away and staying safe. Those are pretty harsh criticisms of Malcolm X. And Malcolm X fires back that Robinson is in the, is in the back pockets of his white bosses like Nelson Rockefeller, like Richard Nixon, like Branch Rickey. And those are harsh criticisms as well. And there's some, there say, has to be some truth, particularly given Nixon's reinvention and, and use of racist politics. Yeah, I think there is some truth in did, both did of he, um, did he, he sounds to me like a remarkably honest and reflective man. Did he recognize... Um, I mean, he died in 1972. America changed dramatically between uh, 1947 and 1972. Did he recognize perhaps that his politics were a little timid, conservative? Well, I'll say that by 1972, the year of his death, Robinson sounds radical. So in 1972, he says that I can no longer salute the flag. I can no longer stand for the national anthem. I can no longer sing the words of the anthem. He says, I can't do this because I know that I'm a black man in a white world. That's pretty amazing for Robinson to say. It sounds to me a lot like the themes that Malcolm X expressed. In fact, I'd say that near the end of his life, Robinson sounded a lot like Malcolm X. In 1969, the New York Times runs an article on the flag on July 4th. They ask Robinson about the flag in this, in this article. And he says, I can't uh, salute the flag. I'm not going to fly the flag either. Every time I see the flag, I figure the person isn't uh, my friend. And he says this because of the white backlash in the late 1960s. And so he distinguishes himself, I think, from the earlier politics in which he was pretty much a flag waver. He's not around, of course, unfortunately, today. If he was, I think, um, or if he's looking down on us from somewhere else, um, my guess is he would be looking very ruefully at everything from Black Lives Matter to Colin Kaepernick. Um, what, what, what's your take if, if, um, if Jackie Robinson could comment on the situation of race, 
and particularly of, of black men in America in 2023? I can't imagine that he wouldn't be shaking his head saying these are the same problems uh, that I faced when I was growing up in Pasadena and when I played Major League Baseball and when I fought for civil rights after baseball. These are the same problems, the problems of police brutality, of economic injustice for Black Americans who suffered immeasurably during the pandemic, of uh, a lack of peace as well. Robinson was concerned about all these issues throughout his life. Now, just the, on the issue of police brutality alone, Andrew, near the end of his life, Robinson is walking into the Apollo Theater in Harlem, and a police officer ends up sticking a gun in Robinson's chest. The officer says, what are you doing? And Robinson says, none of your business. And they get into a scuffle. And it only and this comes is in, to an in end. the Harlem. This is in the this Apollo in Theater Harlem. in Harlem. Yeah, this is in downtown oh. Harlem, right on 125th Street, uh, outside the Apollo Theater. And the only way the scuffle comes to an end is because a crowd forms around and some people yell to the police officer, hey, do you know who that is? It's Jackie Robinson. And the police officer eventually backs down and Robinson writes about this later. And he says, can you imagine what would have happened to me had my name not been Jackie Robinson? And we can imagine that because we know all of these young black men whose names... Yeah or not Jackie Robinson, and face police brutality. Hence, so Black Lives he, Matter, right? So what would he say, do you think? How would he explain why the America of 2023, when it comes to race, uh, is, is such a disappointment to him? How, how would he blame it? Would he do it in institutional, cultural terms, simply because white people are racist, the police? Uh, or, or might he acknowledge that some changes have happened? I mean, it's obviously an incredibly complicated and controversial subject. I think in terms of police brutality, it's pretty instructive to see what he did with the Black Panthers in 1970. In 1970, the Black Panthers were attacked by uh, quite a few off-duty white police officers. And, you know, the Black Panthers were famous for embracing the use of any means necessary to defend themselves, right? And Robinson at this point comes out and he speaks in favor of the Black Panthers and their right to defend themselves. In fact, he meets with them at this point and he praises them. He also encourages them this is really interesting, Andrew, who he encourages them to sit down with the police authorities of New York City and encourage police reform. Absolutely interesting to me. Uh, and that's what he does at that point. He calls for the reform of the police department. So I think he saw racism, at least in terms of police brutality, as a structural issue demanding uh, significant changes in police departments. And I'm guessing there would be a similar degree of ambivalence in terms of Robinson's uh, response to the Obama presidency. What do you think he would have made of that? Did he ever talk or write about the possibility of a, a black man or, or woman becoming president of the United States? He did. In 1963, he spoke in the preliminary program at the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. His good friend, Bayard Rustin, had invited him to take part, and Robinson was all too happy to do that. He wasn't part of the main speakers that happened at the Lincoln Memorial Program, but he was part of this preliminary program. And during and after those comments he made at the Lincoln Memorial, 
uh, he was interviewed and an interviewer asked him about the possibility of a black president. And Robinson basically says, oh, we can't worry about that now. What we need to do right now is focus on the rights that we're demanding today. So Robinson was not really somebody who focused on the future. So much. He, didn't, he didn't focus on the dream out there as Dr. King did. He really focused on the needs right here and right now, as Dr. King also did. But Robinson did this without the dream guiding him. In the 60s, how bound up? Was he with the civil rights movement? I mean, was he close to John Lewis? I know he was, you write about uh, in the book and, and contributors 42 today to his relationship with Martin Luther King. How involved and engaged was he in the struggle for civil rights in the 60s? So in 1956, the NAACP awards Robinson their annual award for achievement, and it's called the Spingard Medal. He gets this medal in 1946, and he, in fact, criticizes his earlier stance for being a bit of a quietist, for not speaking out. But from 46, he really takes that medal and runs with it. And from 47 on, he begins to become very active in the NAACP. He travels the country in 47, 48, 48, 49, raising money and increasing the membership of the NAACP. He also becomes active with Dr. King in the movement from 56 on. And, you know, King was a hero to Robinson, and Robinson was a hero to Dr. King. And Dr. King said when Robinson went into the Hall of Fame, you know, Jackie was a sit-inner before the sit-ins and a freedom rider before the freedom ride. So Dr. King thought that he was standing, and he was right about this, on the broad shoulders of Robinson. He also recognized Robinson's popularity and appeal, especially to Black audiences. So he would invite Robinson to various campaigns in the civil rights movement and ask him to help prop up the morale of those who were weary and worn down from being involved in civil rights. Robinson was very involved in that. He also becomes a leader in his own right, more or less. He opens a bank in Harlem to help uh, people who can't get access to loans, get access to loans and build businesses and homes. Uh, and the list goes on. He helps rebuild black churches that were scorched because of their efforts to register voters in the South. Robinson's involvement in the civil rights can't be under overstated. Rachel Robinson said her husband was an informal civil rights leader. I think he was a formal civil rights leader. I really do. What was his view on the role of sports? Uh, I'm curious, did he have a response, for example, to the 1968 Olympic Games in Mexico and the Black Power, the famous Black Power salutes of some of the U.S. sprinters? Um, did he see the role or perhaps even the responsibility of black sportsmen, um, athletes, baseball players, football players, basketball players in being political and not just being sportsmen? He did. Uh, Robinson led a civil rights campaign at one point to support Medgar Evers and his work in Mississippi, his civil rights work in Mississippi. And as part of this campaign, he decided that he would invite uh, athletes to join him in Jackson, Mississippi. This was after Medgar Evans was, was murdered, right? Or this before. was before Evers okay. was murdered. Yeah, and only a few did. And Robinson was really harsh in his criticism toward his fellow athletes. He was 
harsh about his criticism toward black athletes, especially uh, throughout his life. For the most part, he was he was very critical of Campanella, his his teammate Roy Campanella, who was catcher for the Dodgers, and for Willie and against Willie Mays as well. He thought they were too quietistic and not active enough in civil rights campaigns. He really liked a major league player named Kirk Flood who fought against free agents, who fought for free agency, excuse me, in Major League Baseball. He also testified on Kurt Flood's behalf. But, you know, Robinson was constantly calling his fellow athletes to join him in the civil rights movement, and he was constantly berating them as well for not doing enough. Well, Mike, let's end just with a little bit more description of the book. Tell me about it. I mean, how many um, contributions are there? And... uh... Uh, perhaps you might pick out, for you at least, the most memorable. Well, the book is called 42 Today, Jackie Robinson and His Legacy. Uh, It's published by New York University Press. It has 13 chapters with contributions from journalists and historians and filmmakers and all-around good people. I think you would know Quite a few of them. Uh, You mentioned Ken Burns. Another great writer in the book is John Ige. John is coming out with a new book, a masterful biography of Martin Luther King called King, A Life. And Ige has a great chapter in the book about Robinson's uh, first days with the Dodgers. And I'll just highlight that as one of the highlights of the book. Robinson shows up to play for the Dodgers and he discovers in the locker room that there's no locker for him. There's only a peg on a wall. And beyond that, he has a jersey with the number, not two, not four, which are prime numbers at that point in Major League Baseball. They're low, they're they're enviable numbers. He gets the number 42. That's a high number, it's not enviable. But Robinson takes that number and he turns it into history. So that on April 15th, every year, Major League Baseball across the league wear number 42. Now, why do they do that? Because Robinson in 1947 from 47 to 56 took all of those racist insults, all those racist threats that came his way and turned them into athletic prowess, athletic muscle. He became Rookie of the Year in 47. He became National League Player of the Year in 48. He helped the Dodgers win the World Series. And he did all of this, Andrew, while under threats to his life. He not only did he compile Hall of Fame statistics, he did it while his life was being threatened. Amazing what his statistics would probably be had he not suffered all the racism and discrimination. So Og's chapter is really uh, a fun chapter in the book. Well, even for a Los Angeles Dodger, he was a great man. Um, Jackie Robinson and his legacy, 42 today. Another wonderful contribution from uh, my guest, Michael Long. so need to read his other work, like uh, Jackie Robinson, A Spiritual Biography. Mike, uh, hope you recover soon from COVID. You seem on the way to recovery. And uh, we will talk again, maybe during baseball season. Thank you so much. Thanks, Andrew. Play ball.